0: Hey everyone, before we get going with today's episode, just a quick one to say that our book, Lessons from the Best on Becoming Your Best, has been nominated in the Sports Performance Book category at the Sunday Times Sports Book Awards. Um, Wow, we're amazed because the shortlist is incredible, but the big news is it's a public vote. So you are able to help us win this award, and we would love that. All you need to do if you'd like to vote is go to sportsbookawards.com forward slash vote we'll put the link in the description to this podcast but if the podcast or the book has helped change your life we'd love it if you could vote for us thanks so much how you doing i'm jay comfrey you're listening to high performance i gift to you for free every week This podcast turns the lived experiences of the planet's highest performers into your life lessons. So right now, allow myself and Professor Damien Hughes to speak to the greatest leaders, thinkers, sports stars and entrepreneurs on the planet so they can be your teacher. Remember, this podcast isn't about high achievement or success. It's about high happiness and taking you closer to a life of fulfillment, empathy and understanding. Today, this awaits
1: you. In disaster planning, you're like a Paris fashion house. You're always two seasons ahead or maybe three. You're well into 2023. The hardest part for me in March 2020 was saying to government departments, so that's mainly civil servants, let's talk about this for five years. And they would say, well, what do you mean? This is six to eight weeks and then it's over. I said, no, this is the global pandemic. It's the most planned for risk in UK history. And this is a five to to 10 year initial disruption, and then 10 years, you'll see that this is, you will be able to bookmark this. But there's no evidence in history that this is six to eight weeks. But almost to the point of you were breaking news of terminal illness, they could not adjust to the idea that this would be with them. Sometimes it's doing the very best that you can do for people at the very worst time of their lives.
0: Today, it's a really powerful conversation with a lady called Lucy Easthope. She is the country's leading authority on recovering from disaster for more than 20 years. She's challenged people to see life after tragic events differently. She's the first person on the scene when something horrendous happens and she puts empathy and passion and care at the forefront of what she's doing. And she will talk in this episode about what it's like being a woman and being judged by men. She will talk about the fact that the soft skills, the things that you can't even measure, the intangible ability to just relate to someone can totally change their lives when they're going through a time of true trauma. She's worked with the Prime Minister's office, she's worked across government departments, she's worked for charities, she was central to the global pandemic and in this episode she reflects on a life in disaster but she reflects on it in a way that has really fantastic, incredible takeaways for you as well. She's written an amazing book called When the Dust Settles and I think the very title of the book, it just says optimism, it says positivity. Um, And Lucy has experienced these things for herself as well. She's experienced her own version of trauma and disaster. And she talks about how she managed to guide herself through that as well. But I think the person whose job it is to assess the scale of a problem and what's needed to ensure a smooth transition through that back to a life of happiness is the perfect person for you to hear from when it comes to high performance. Because we're not talking on this podcast about achieving loads, we're talking about sensing a real happiness and a real serenity in your lives so thanks so much for coming along to this conversation with lucy don't forget if you want to find out more from high performance you can go to the Highperformancepodcast.com where you can join our members club the high performance circle and get weekly inspiration direct to your inbox but right now let's do it let's get you closer to your own version of high performance in the company of lucy easthope Well, Lucy, first of all, thank you so much for joining us on High Performance. Um, Sometimes we start the episodes with Damien and I explaining someone's job. I think with your job, you're the person that should do the explaining to our audience who are listening or watching this. I would love to know how you describe it and which examples or stories you draw upon when you share your job with
1: people. So I work in a field called disaster management. And my particular area of that is something called disaster recovery. So I go in When something happens, I size it up and I look at what's needed next. And that might be for the families and the communities affected. And it might also be what the organisation needs. And that's quite a long scan into the future. And uh, I've been doing that for about 22 years. And I've worked on pretty much every major incident that's affected UK citizens. Such as? So I've worked uh, at the start of my career on 9-11 the aftermath of the July the 7th bombings in 2005, uh, all the way through to more recent events, uh, several floods and storms, air disasters, the Grenfell Tower disaster, uh, the Covid-19 pandemic and currently working on Ukraine.
0: It's a fascinating job um, and we look forward to delving deeper on this and I think what I really want people to understand is that we want this, and I know you do as well, to be a conversation about hope and positivity. Because I think it's easy to think that maybe it would be a conversation about the total opposite, right? Absolutely. So how would you describe in your world high performance?
1: Sometimes it's doing the very best that you can do for people at the very worst time of their lives. So it's very hidden. It's very hard to audit. It's very hard to go back to ask people. Did I perform well for you at the worst time of your lives? So the way that we measure that sometimes is very, very difficult. There's a lot of skills and emotions that perhaps aren't classic in the definitions of performance. So it's things like integrity and compassion, and knowing that um, when you have responded to a disaster, you've taken everything from any other previous previous event you've worked on and applied it to the to the next one. And that's something we do constantly, and just giving as much as you can but also i think as part of that there is a huge part of that that's also looking after yourselves you have to be very aware of what you are giving in this situation
2: and what are you giving
1: so the the very first thing i think about in a disaster response is what do the people who never asked to be there need so the first place that i'm going to is i'm caring for the deceased the bereaved and the survivors. Now, I think one of the things that people haven't realized about disaster management is we train constantly. Um, we, we, We test, we write scenarios, we plan, we set up pretend exercises. But the one group of people who aren't there are the bereaved people, the people in the public, the people in the shopping center, the people in the cinema complex who weren't expecting this. So one of my roles is to always advocate for them both when we do it in pretend, but also when we do it for real, because they don't necessarily know what they want. They're just waiting for some news that they're hoping they never get. So my role is to say, hang on, do you remember when in the 1980s, for example, you'd gather families together waiting for news of an incident and you wouldn't give them any tea or coffee. There would be no drinks available. And so sometimes, you know, what what I consider the highest of performances can look really mundane. It has everybody got warm clothes, a cup of tea, somewhere safe, they're away from perhaps a news drone. And so it can look really operational and mundane. And that's my first job before I get to thinking about the longer term.
0: And we all hope that, you know, we are never the people that you need to come and meet and the people listening to this podcast, we hope the same for them. But we will all be dealing with people who we can be more empathetic to, we can understand them more, we can put ourselves in their shoes more. So would you mind sharing with us the first thing that you want to know from people or the first questions that you ask on the ground to get the information you need to be as empathetic or as useful as possible?
1: Yeah. So one of the first things you learn actually in our field is the importance of the plan, yeah. you know, and, and, and I think that's one of been, been, been one of the lovely things about my work is, is we have a load of tools and things that we use. So when a, when a disaster happens, one of your biggest enemies is the startle factor you know, the the alarm goes off, like, what do I do? And everybody feels that right up to the highest commanders of any organization. And a plan, I write it in big font, bullet points. It's not like a briefing report. It's really clear. And you give that to the commander and it reminds them of some really basic, simple things that they need to do. What sort of stuff's Um, in there? And that's things like straight away, securing the scene checking where the people who need you most have gone often people fight and flight so they leave the scene most disasters right up until the current events we're seeing manchester grenfell people flee the scene and we lose track of whether they need any support from the agencies that's when your adrenaline kicks in so one of the things is 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 have you have you offered somebody a place to go then i'm asking um how many people are affected Often we don't have what's called a manifest very, very quickly. So who's affected? Um, Are there any things that make this particularly painful or difficult? Is this a chemical or nuclear incident? Is this something difficult and more challenging? Is this affecting children? Is this an arena where people went to have fun? They did not go for something like this to happen. Um, How are people getting home? How are people getting a message out to their loved ones? And we work from a plan. So I take that from each disaster to each exercise and then to the next disaster. And sometimes we forget stuff or we learn new stuff. So something new will take us by surprise, like the way, for example, over the last decade, people use smartphones is very different. People have finding apps on their phones, for example. So that changes the dynamic. Um, Somebody's dad might have got in the car just by realising that they're at the location because they've got find your friend on the phone. So how we respond changes, but there's always a key template of compassions, I think, that
2: travels. Can I take you to just before you go into those disaster moments? So, because you described some advice that you got from firefighters that went into the Oklahoma bombings, where they taught you about taking a deep breath before you go in there. So, would you tell us a little bit about how you mentally prepare yourself before you walk into what you describe as? the gates of hell in some cases.
1: Absolutely and I think you know it's something I really love talking to things like um, women in six forms about you know is that we've lost a connection between grounding ourselves physically sometimes and what we're about to do so getting ready for say an exam or a sports performance. I physically kind of place myself place my feet very firmly on the ground and I um, what we see is, in, when people are in crisis or adrenaline, they breathe very shallow breaths, and a really deep breath in, so you know you're, you're well oxygenated. And I also listen to music, and then I go, I go and make the first approach, which is often, as I describe in my writing, quite a difficult approach. It's quite a difficult challenge to get in you know what am I doing there why am I here to advise it's very you know I'm not I'm not a fireman I'm not putting anything out so what am I doing and then I feel strong enough to go in
0: this might seem a strange question but I think it gives us a better understanding of what the music does for you what music do you choose in that situation
1: so that's some big beats you know you absorb them at the same time as you're planting your feet on the ground so that's uh m lose yourself or some kanye uh stormzy and some of my big show tunes what we what we uh, termed at the end of last year uh the planthems that get us into the next stage that take us from one world into another
0: and what do they do for you specifically
1: they take me f- they take me out they transition me I'm ready I'm stronger that the, the, the music has to have a, a really strong deep beat that goes into my sinews into my tissue and then I'm ready uh, I, you know I think it's uh, possibly similar to what you see with kind of um, uh, arena and boxer anthems you know that kind of pumping up of the of the music um, and that's what I've, I've always tried to do and uh, I, th- I think it's something people have really picked up on is my use of music
0: it's interesting because I think that we speak to a lot lot of people on this podcast and we talk often about authenticity you know people sit here and they say to us well you know i have to be me completely in every moment because then that's the real me delivering whereas it almost sounds like there are two lucys there's the lucy that's a mum and a wife and a friend but then there's a very different lucy who's on the ground in a huge disaster is that important for you to to be able to play those those two roles and perhaps stops the more traumatic elements of your life slipping into the family and the home and the other things, maybe
1: that's hugely important. And I think people have assumed that that's like a sort of schism, a sort of psychological pain to be the two people. But actually, I think that's probably another important aspect of performance is to have to be a character that have to go into that. And one of the moments you notice that, for example, I'm not alone in that. You know, it's a very, it's a very common forensic and policing trait that I notice, you are two people, you know, you're great fun in the pub, but at work, you're very different. And literally what you notice, for example, um, when you go to say a a disaster mortuary, there will be a changing area, you know, and we're kind of ribbing each other and who's got, you know, who's got put a few pounds on and the kit doesn't fit anymore and that kind of thing. And the minute you step out of that and you're into the, into the mortuary space, it stops immediately mid-sentence. You don't even finish what you started it's two worlds and I think that's very important.
2: So just for context then Lucy would you describe say some of the characteristics of Lucy the the wife the mother the daughter and then Lucy (laughs) the disaster expert what's the difference what characteristics do you adopt in both of those worlds?
1: I think there is elements that transcend. I'm constantly uh, a lighter person. I think I'm quite an optimistic person. So there are things that, that play for both. I think one of the things that I learned very early on, if you're giving any kind of advice in this setting, is you have to be incredibly well evidenced and you have to be very clear. Your your communication is very direct. You learn from those around you that you can't be fluffy or uncertain or you, you know, there's a there's a sort of delivery of messages. We need to do this this and this you also might listen a lot more you might be very aware of the startle factor that means people are perhaps shouting over you so you're trying to sort of read the room very very quickly um and i think you know i think it would be a disservice to say there's a softer lucy mother you know lucy mother lucy um, wife and then hard lucy that's not quite the same thing but certainly probably the biggest change is in the way that you communicate I notice, for example, I think so- sometimes in these environments, you, you're as a, as a woman, you're in the minority. And if I'm finding that the room is very, very, very hard to be heard in, you'll actually lower your voice and lower your tone and speak slower. And you sort of, you know, you create the comms for the room that you're in, I think that's quite important to do.
2: See, because there'll be a lot of people listening to this that, their lives have been disrupted during a pandemic that they were used to a regular commute to work and that was their equivalent of that changing room yeah. that you go into, but that's now been blurred. Yeah. So what tips and advice can you give to anyone listening to this about how they can make that transition between professional... And personal lives?
1: That's such a good question because it's the first thing some organizations asked me in sort of March 2020 when a lockdown was becoming apparent because I go into a lot of organizations in advance to look at things and one of the areas we were re- very worried about was things like social work and education and the whole issue of blurring the physical setting of home life and work life has caused a lot of problems for a lot of people and um, one of the first things I actually asked uh, organizations to do was try and find uh, certainly after the first lockdown safer ways for staff in roles like child protection to be able to come into work because actually we didn't think it was fair to blur that boundary so much and there was a really difficult moment for me in in March 2020 where I was writing uh, what are called excess death plans we were planning for the dead of the pandemic and i was upstairs and i came downstairs and both of my little children were at the base of the stairs asking what was for tea and normally that as you say it's the journey home or the, the sort of demobbing as we call it that means that i i transition into their mom And they were right there and they were right the other side of the door of that call. And that just felt very, very wrong. So after that, I went into places much more and more. And I've encouraged colleagues to do the same so that we could keep that separation.
2: But what about mentally? So people that maybe don't have that, that option to go into a different place. Yeah. What sort of ideas have you got that where we can make that mental transition yeah. a bit easier?
1: And it's one of the things that I ask when people are, are talking to me or working with me, you know, the number of, say, young civil servants who have been working in disaster planning who are in a one room in a, in a multiple, you know, house of multiple occupancy, and they are living and existing entirely in that room. And at the end of the call, which would be all be about disaster planning, they would ask in a roundabout way that question you know I would say how are you which is of course a very unusual thing sometimes to ask in a very transactional business call and they would say I'm all right but I'm exhausted or I'm all right but I'm working much longer hours than I did and um, so one of the things is is to build in things like getting outside um, exercise being much more what we call boundaryed about your working day the use of out of our office to be very clear about when you're available people have leaked their availability during the pandemic from the very early start of the day all the way through into the night so then when i realized that i would talk to a lot more employers about we can't ask your staff to be in the best condition to respond if you've created a situation of burnout and actually in emergency planning and disaster planning at the moment it's a huge worry because staff are absolutely exhausted they've been in perma crisis now for two and a half years
0: and in many ways all of us now are Survivors of a disaster, because we've all lived through a global pandemic that none of us were expecting to varying degrees of impact on our lives. And I think we have a more pessimistic world now. I think people struggle to see the good stuff and the light because they've had to go through this. You spent years peering into the darkest, hardest places, yet you still have the optimism for your life and for your children's lives and for the future of all of us. So, can we talk about how we retain optimism? even when it's difficult, because I kind of feel that you're the oracle on this, because I know you're very modest, so you might hate me saying that, but I kind of think if you can find optimism for your life, we can all find optimism, because you've seen the very worst of humanity and the very worst that this planet can serve up to us.
1: Absolutely. And what I would say there is, you know, there probably isn't a great deal of difference in the number of disasters and tragedies and conflicts that we're seeing now than there have been for any of the generations before us. We consume them very differently. So one of the things you notice, for example, in the in disaster world is we don't often have the telly on. We do in the command centres, we'll have the television on. But sometimes we will consume media very differently. You'll find, for example, which I always find very lovely in the mortuary rest area for staff, they'll have jigsaws or colouring books or you know things things to do something different with we don't for example work on the deceased and then immediately put on a news piece about them so thinking about the way that you're consuming bad news I think is a really important part that I was taught 22 years ago and I'd, I'd love to pass that on I think the other thing is there's a real sense that when you see as you say the kind of worst of times you realize how fragile life is and how fragile we are and one of the things with with my work is it does bring me into contact with the deceased and you you don't die in a disaster without it being sudden and unexpected and traumatic so one of the things there that that gives you is a real sense of not in a hedonistic way you know still have a pension and an ISA but you know live for the day and one of the things I get very strict about is don't leave home on a row because I've seen an awful lot of that and I've seen an awful lot of pain that that causes in families you know each day that you have with with people is is a really precious one the other thing that i see when you watch a whole community rebuild from something and you just you cannot you cannot see where they're getting their energy from to rebuild a primary school that's burnt down or rebuild rebuild a whole city center is that when you watch that you realize it's a thousand tiny little steps you know, just go outdoors today. And this is I think this is really important for people at the moment who are perhaps feeling very scared. They've perhaps shielded. They've put a lot of effort into shielding. You have to take tiny little steps that you feel safe with. And that's very similar to what we see with bereavement um so i mean i've got the best job in the world because i get that privilege of watching people making those steps all the time
0: so how has it changed then the way that that you see life you know i'm a firm believer in the phrase memento mori with the stoics use which is we're all dying basically and people who don't buy into that think that's really negative and pessimistic but it's the total opposite because it's a reminder to make the most of every day so seeing all of this changed the way that you think on a daily basis
1: Absolutely. So you, you live very differently. You love very differently. You know, one of the things that I um, wanted to to write about in my book was some personal struggles that in many ways are absolutely diminished by the total totemic events that you're looking at, but they're in there because otherwise I would be a hypocrite because there's days I don't want to get out to bed either. You know, so there's those days where you go, "I, I can do this. So part of that using of the music and the planting of the feet and the breathing in and the internal voice that goes, I can do this. You know, every day, I never lose any any terror. I never lose any awe. These events still devastate me when they happen, but each time, I know that people are looking to me and my colleagues around me for that plan. So you you learn to bring something to that. But I absolutely subscribe to the to the same mantra, and uh, I think you, you you taste life very differently
2: when you do. I was reminded when I was reading your book, and I thought it was really beautifully written about how powerful hope is it reminded me of another book by a guy called andrew razegi that wrote a book called hope where he offered loads of examples of say rats that had been thrown into water and had to swim and the rats that were taken out even if they were just given brief respite could swim for a lot longer than the ones that had never been given that sense of optimism or there was doctors that had rebranded tablets and called them hope tablets and it had A placebo effects of producing it. So when we talk about high performance, it's always this hope that there's better days ahead, that the future is going to be brighter than the present. Can you give us any tips on how we can all become better at hope?
1: Yeah, and it's a really, it's a really interesting one because one of the things that people like me took a real challenge on in the pandemic was some scientists saying, you know, you're peddling hope. You're, you know, it's it sells. Somebody like you, we're all looking for an oracle, we're looking for a smiley face. Somebody like you saying there's good times ahead, there's a horizon, it's a snake oil kind of idea, and that really necessarily challenged me because I'm not selling an empty concept of hope. And one of the things that disaster planners do, which I think is really helpful, is we plan to the re- reasonable worst case scenario. That's what we, you know, that's our mantra, the reasonable worst case scenario. So a good example is something like 1999 into 2000. Uh, We're all too young to remember it, but they they thought the world would end. Mm, uh, Yeah, 1159, 31st of December, 1999. You'll never know (laughs) whether it was just all our planning. I was too young, but it was just all my colleagues planning that meant that we didn't see apocalypse as the world tipped over into the millennium because so much work had been done. So one of the things about the reasonable worst case scenario is in disaster planning, you're like a Paris fashion house. You're always two seasons ahead or maybe three. You're well into 2023. You're thinking about the future all the time. And it's not saccharine optimism. It's like, okay, I think we're going to see more of that. Oh, I think we can see that that's going to happen. And of course, one of the things that I build on a lot is there's hundreds of years of disaster recovery advice. You know, people have been writing about this, the scriptures, Pompeii, they wrote about how they came back after Pompeii, not just the eruption itself so there's hundreds of of years of writing about what disaster recovery looks like so I think this will resonate that in the first eight weeks after a big notice a big bang of an incident there's a honeymoon phase you might remember it as March and April 2020 where people are cheering and clapping the only people who were depressed in the country at that point was the disaster planners because you know it lasts about eight weeks And then it drops off. Why is that? It's a very brief, heroic uh, release of adrenaline that we can get through this. People are offering homes to refugees. People are being. So, one of the things I have to be very careful about at the moment is giving advice that can look terribly cynical, not hopeful at all. People going, Hang on, are we in the eight week honeymoon Mm -hmm. phase? And this is a graph designed by the Red Cross that shows for eight weeks, we're like, Yeah, we're in it together. You know, I'm doing this and I've got a Facebook group and I'm doing. But in disaster planning, it lasts, almost set your clock by it. And then there's a massive slump. So in a pandemic, that looks like, for example, hostility towards healthcare staff. You hate your GP. You're really angry at the world. And then we see it just carries on going down. And then you see a two-year low. I've never not seen the two-year low. And that came about December, January of just gone. You might remember it. So the mood was really low. And we're not getting the Christmas we were told we were going to get. But then, what the red cross graph shows is, there's an uptick. It gets better. Now, there are caveats in that. So, for example, I would never use it with bereavement. If you've lost somebody in a disaster, the recovery graph doesn't work it's it's a a constant pain the other thing where the recovery graph is more broken is with something where there's a very very painful legal aftermath so something like the Grenfell disaster it's just getting worse those revelations just keep coming the pain just keeps coming but for something like the pandemic the research suggests there's some difficult I call them thickets you know thickets to clear our way through and then there's an uptick and people will see things differently we will probably feel more seasonally again. So next summer, perhaps even this summer, we'll feel more hopeful. And people will start to plan and think differently. They'll know to be perhaps readier for a difficult winter. So it's not an empty hope that we were accused of peddling, almost like a sort of cult. It's informed by how communities come back after disaster. You never lose the pain of the event. You will never forget the pandemic and what it did to your families in that time. It will be part of your history, but you will come back out of this. And often what I see is a survivance, not survival. It's the term survivance from the Native Americans in um, in America use the term to mean still with pain. It's still with memory, but there's hope and there's humor. And that's the best I can hope for.
2: Because we often talk about this idea of the messy middle. And yeah. you've just really beautifully <laughs> described it with that two year low. So yeah. One, the optimism that, think that you'll come out of that messy middle bit. But is there any specific tips, tricks or techniques when you're in it to get through it?
1: Yeah. And you have to work quite hard through it. One of the things that, that people don't realise, this is a real, you know, that, that two year low is, is devastating. You know, we see what's called the great exodus. So a lot of people packing in their jobs, a lot of people becoming very ill, mental health taking a real dive. There's a lot of work for individuals and communities and agencies in disaster recovery. One of the things I think, with corporations who've looked at the next few years is that they have to get themselves and their staff through some of these things. The disaster recovery literature is incredibly relevant to corporations. So how you look after staff at this point has a huge bearing on whether you retain them. So sometimes I go back to disaster communities at seven years and 10 years, and you can see that decisions made about making staff feel part of something, making a community feel part of something, not over-promising. The hardest part for me in March 2020 was saying to government departments, and so that's mainly civil servants, let's talk about this for five years. And they would say, well, what do you mean? This is six to eight weeks, and then it's over. I said, no, this is the global pandemic. It's the most planned for risk in UK history. And this is a five to 10 year initial disruption. And then 10 years, you'll see that this is, a, it, you will be able to bookmark this. But there's no evidence in history that this is six to eight weeks, but they could, they could not almost to the point of you were breaking news of terminal illness. They could not adjust to the idea that this would be with them, and I found that the corporate and private sector got there a lot quicker than the public sector, and I think that's because I think the corporate sector are much more comfortable with concepts like forecasting and risk. They were happier using a five-year forecast. And what does
0: the forecast tell you then? We sit here now; we're recording this April. 2022 there are people and um, I think I might be one of them thinking I'm glad we're through that pandemic is that foolish thinking by me
1: no, it's a mindset, and all disasters end, and and, and uh, you know, you in, in, in exactly that way, they end when people choose to end them. That you know, people were waiting for some kind of klaxon sounded at a press conference that would tell us it was over. It's they don't end like that. So um, this will be what's you know what we call a kind of multi generational event. Your your grandchildren and great grandchildren will learn about this point in history, but individually. You have to constantly manage your own risk. So we will manage this risk amongst us and in our communities for probably the rest of our lives. It will be part of our sort of landscape. But your mindset is very important at this point. But what it is important to recognise is that what, what that does is it pushes the disaster behind closed doors. So for the health sector, it's probably more acute than it's ever been. And that means that you need a lot of compassionate leadership at this point. You need to be very understanding of where it is affecting and um adjusting your mindset that it's very much still with us.
3: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds and they're ready to ship to your door.
0: Like, is it helpful for me to sit around with my wife and my two kids and have a disaster plan for all the things that might go wrong? Maybe that's a step too far because it's with children. But let's talk about a business. You know, should businesses have a disaster plan? Now, the problem then becomes, well, what do you plan for? you? And that's in the next conversation possibly on this podcast is how do you choose what disasters To plan for.
1: Well the best businesses have brilliant disaster plans and often they call it slightly euphemistic terms like corporate recovery and I think one of the reasons that we've seen such amazing broadcasting and you've seen so amazing you know resilient food supplies is that our corporate sector were ready for this. They didn't necessarily plan every day for a pandemic but if you were a good corporation you were planning for what's called DR, disaster recovery, constantly and that R as you say is really important. It wasn't called disaster response, it was about our business will Survive this. And when you go to corporate DR conferences, they're all about the businesses that didn't and what they did to get it wrong. And so they forgot their customer, they forgot their staff welfare, they forgot their messaging, they said some very clunky things. So what we saw as soon as the you know the pandemic was becoming an issue was corporations activated their disaster recovery plans. And they're they're always great allies of me. In terms of the question about family resilience, I remember a young youth worker saying to me after a flood, she said, You are the ones that aren't normal the rest of us shouldn't live like this. And this was actually a theme I picked up in the book was, you know, I don't want people to live with perhaps quite the way I think about it constantly. I have been very proud over the last decade to work on a lot of children's resilience projects. So for children who live in, say, earthquake hit areas, there is some uh, very good research about involving children in conversations about, say, managing in a flood. You know, what, what we're, we're, we can't be naive to is children are aware these things are happening around them. There is a middle ground. You know, I'm very comfortable with people not thinking about it as much as I do, but I would love to see more conversation about community preparedness and readiness. And what I would say is it's a great way to pass an evening with family is to talk you through their family (laughs) emergency plan.
0: (laughs) And what do you plan for then? How, How do you know what disasters await around the corner?
1: So... It's not. We have what's called um, the National Risk Register, which is where uh, we have a, a national a security threat assessment and a national risk register. The national risk register is what's considered the more um, accidental or benign hazard. So it's things like flooding, and that can be downloaded by anybody. And we order them, and we organise them, we put them in a list. So we do have scenarios. But actually, as a you know, if I take it to my own family example, as a disaster planner, I'm less worried about what causes it and more worried about what it does. So uh, I'm really proud. I've, I've saved up all um, winter and it's arrived for the summer, but I've just taken ownership of my own personal generator. <laughs> because, um, you know, one of the things that came out of all of the, what we call lessons identified reports from the four storms that we had January to March was that the public are very, very reliant on overhead power cables. And I looked out my window and I looked at my overhead power cables and I had a power cut in storm, um, I think it was storm Gladys for about 14 hours. And that was enough for me to really worry. So I've bought myself a generator. Now it doesn't matter why my power goes off to me, As a householder, it matters that I can generate some power with a personal generator. So that's how I think we tend to think about disaster planning a bit differently. If today there's an issue on the tube in London, it doesn't matter what causes it to me. Um, That will be for other people to worry about. What I'm worried about is what do people need? It could be an accident, it could be a, a derailment, it could be a terrorist attack. My plan for the survivors and the bereaved and the deceased won't necessarily change. It might have some specific aspects. Terrorism is policed very differently, for example. But what people need doesn't change.
2: See, I think what you're describing here could be so valuable for any organisation, of course. But it reminds me of, um, in Israel, after the Yom Kippur War in 1973, they adopted the 10th Man Rule, where they had somebody that would sit in their cabinet, whose job it was to be the Cassandra, to be the guy that's constantly warning them of imminent threats. and. The rule as I understood it was that they had to listen to them and respond to them. They couldn't just dismiss them as being a quack. Yeah. And I've used that with, say, coaches that I've been lucky enough to work with in sport, where you get them to almost because it forces cognitive diversity, the alternative view, and stops groupthink. What I'm interested in, though, is that somebody that does that professionally. How do you introduce that to people that don't want to let their minds go to worst case scenarios or don't want to get bogged down in what they fear will never happen to them?
1: Yeah, and and, and it's something that the New Zealand disaster recovery guidance actually describes as the wild card. You must always play a wild card, and they actually they went as far as um, uh, giving uh, you could print out the card, and the person who was playing it could hold it. You know, so it's it's got a joker on. It says, "I'm the wild card. You've got to listen to me. You've got to be first of all, you've got to be kind to me." Because I think what you're also getting at is it's very difficult sometimes to play that role. And I think now they call it sort of red team analysis in civil service, and you're the red team. But generally, that role is given to a young man you know, if I'm being blunt about it. that's how, And it's sort of, you can play the role, but within parameters. Don't upset us. Don't, don't embarrass us. Certainly don't, you know, don't show us up with something we really should have thought about that's very basic. So what I've found is it, it's, I think, part of who I am, and certainly it's how I have developed the way that I perform, is to play that role if you are not wanted and as a woman is very, very difficult. And one of the reasons for writing the book was there's a whole tribe of, of women emergency planners coming after me who will sit in meetings for things like SAGE, you've heard of the sort of scientific advisory group, and say that is wrong. And, and they are generally not heard. It's a very difficult environment to be heard in. And then what do you do? You know, that's one of the real challenges is if, if that 10th man s- says something, what do you do with that when you're
2: So what have you learnt then about being heard in groups that don't want to listen to your message?
1: One of the things, and I think it also comes down to, to, to the concept of high performance, you have to be the best in the room if you're going to take on the wild card role. You have to have the best evidence base because you are going to be the most challenged. So you kind of wake up and you have to have read everything that morning and from uh, many different opposing views. You have to have subscriptions to as many different uh, outlets and magazines and journals as you can. I, I, I've only recently joined social media, but I get a lot of challenge because people will say, but you, you posted an article that said the opposite of that. And hour ago. Well, of course I did. You have to be able to to critically reflect. You have to wildcard yourself 10 times a day. You have to be constantly open to challenge. You also, I talked about managing your body when you go into a scene, you have to manage challenge. And criticism is some of the hardest things to take as a human. So somebody will say you're wrong, Lucy. Or I talk about in the book, you're a fantasist, Lucy. You're a Cassandra. I I I love my Greek myths, but generally a lot of colleagues around me think it's a negative term. So they they're insulting you when they're calling you a Cassandra.
2: Because Cassandra was the one that speaks the truth and nobody ever believed her. Yeah,
1: Yeah. and I think people sort of didn't know the myth, so they just thought like you're a Cassandra. (laughs) They were being rude to you. And I've got a list of phrases that are used back at you. We we don't need your pink and fluffy today, Lucy. I could do it, I could do it for days, all the time. Yeah, I wrote an article about being the pink and fluffy in the room because I would say, hang on, has anybody checked that those people have got access to a shower and a loo before we ask them to go in for an interview with counter-terror? So I learned that when I was criticized, you tense up, you hold your body tighter, you're defensive, you squeak, (laughs) your voice gets higher. So I would practice when I'm criticized because you know, that's all that happens is the wild card. You know, I think people think it's a cool role. It would be cool, I think, if it was played by Dan- Daniel Craig. But when it's played <laughs> by like little round me, it's not so cool. So I would learn, okay, they're not criticizing Lucy. They're criticizing the idea. Okay, I need to have 10 really good studies to show why this is an, I- an idea. And then they would get criticized. And so it, it, it trained me, I think, to be the very, very best that I could be and that meant that while I was working in disaster response I did a master's in disaster management and then while I was working in disaster response and trying to have children I did a PhD in medicine because the other thing that that happens is they say well your advice is good but we've got we've got a doctor here or we've got somebody with a criteria here and they would play the rank off the whole time so you had to have the rank and so I now when I'm mentoring younger women it's often things they don't expect to be taught, like how to hold yourself.
2: But spin it on its so other... So let's look at it from the other perspective, from anyone listening to this, that might be the guy, the guys, I'm using that <laughs> phrase, but the guys that would play a power card, the guys that would be quick to shoot you down. What messages would you want them to hear that how they can actually listen to that valuable input?
1: One of the bitterest points of work and it happens all the time and there's no sweetness in it like I don't run around the room going I was right I was right there's no sweetness is when that man and it is as you say quite often a man sometimes it's a woman, but usually it's a man comes up to me about a year later and says crikey you were right on that would you like to come and brief my team now I don't want to continue this cycle always that that person comes to me and says, you you were right. So one of the ways is, is as much training as we can and as much access to education as we can. When I started in this career, It was hugely prized for senior incident commanders, police and fire and others to go and study a postgraduate qualification. And during the time that I've been in this career, the idea of education and particularly university education has been constantly eroded. And these were usually men and men who had not had any formal university education at all. And they would fight for the right to do a postgrad qualification. So I had all these very, very senior people and corporations coming on on a degree programme that I was running because they wanted to do critical reflection on their own practice. they—you know It was post-Hillsborough, it was post a lot of the disasters of the 1990s, and they were being asked, did you do everything you can? Why did you adopt that defensive position? And I'd love us to get back to that time where it was highly desirable for, for a very senior incident commander to say, hang on, I, I want to gain that again because... I brought a lot of my ego into that. And let's do that in the exercise, not come to me a year later and say, sorry, Luce, you were, you were right on that. The
0: the other thing to remember though, is that you, you're not always right either, isn't it? So what have you learned there about going in saying, this is what's going to happen. Yeah. And then slowly as the conversation progresses, yeah. you have to have the humility to think, yeah, uh, yeah I'm having my mind changed. Yeah. Now.
1: And that's the other thing with say on, on some of the bigger issues around critical reflection. So, and sometimes it can be a really simple thing. Um, you know, it is just an assumption that's, that's, that's challenged. Um, I have to say, um, on those big calls, the other thing is sometimes there's a lot of relief if you've been ignored and maybe it's, it could have played out very differently. Um, one of the things that I suggested with the Grenfell Tower fire was that, and I still believe, more, much more should have been done to keep communities together. And one of the things that I suggested was the use of perhaps a royal park to create a temporary village like we had seen in places like Canterbury, New Zealand after the earthquake, That idea never got taken up. It was considered very poor optics. You know, it wouldn't work. And, you know, maybe I'd be the person who was the, you know, the idea behind something that had been been terrible. There is a humility. There is a reflection. And that's another thing about stepping from my private world to my work world is sometimes if I don't demob properly between work and personal, I come home very punchy to the family environment. You're like, no, I'm definitely right on this. (laughs) Yeah, it's a really, really difficult one. But
0: then you still have to be able to make big decisions. I was thinking about this on on my way to the interview. I was like, well, I can't decide what to have for dinner. (laughs) Sometimes I can't even choose whether to walk the dog before or after lunch. Yeah. And you're arriving at a scene, sometimes without very much information in advance, and you're having to make very quick, very big decisions that are way bigger than the ones I've just mentioned and that are having a direct impact. And let's remember when you talk to the survivor of an incident or the family of someone who's been killed, that conversation will be carried for the rest of their lives, the way you dealt with them in the immediate aftermath, even though you, it means a lot to you, but you move on and you have other conversations with other people. For them, that's that can sometimes be the biggest moment of that that whole experience. So what have you learned when it comes to trusting yourself to make these decisions? Where do you go to get the answer
1: so the 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 new zealand and i refer to that because it's a beautiful piece of writing that the disaster recovers wrote after the earthquake and they say you know a couple of lessons with disaster decision making one is make empowered decisions So empower your workforce to make them so i i always clarify what am i doing there who's believing in me why am i there and make early decisions with intent So one of the things I think we see with a lot of the political decisions at the moment is they they always feel like they could be turned over or rode back on. So the public lose a lot of faith in those decisions need to be evidenced. And then unless something changes that fundamentally alters them, honored and stuck to so early and with intent and also limit the amount of choices that you've got. So your dog needs to go for a walk, you're going to do it. I also think there's a, there's a thing about sort of, you know, there's a time pressure on what we do. One of the things I think that a lot of my writing draws out is allyship. So I work out who else is there who is perhaps going to also fight for this. And that's often, you, you win that over in peacetime, you win that over in training. So I train with police forces constantly. And then when the, when the accident, actual incident happens, those allies will go, I agree with her. And so you're not, you're not the lone voice, but also you, you, as you say before, you get the challenge that you need. The other thing is, there's a couple of things where I will fight to the death. And one of those, for example, is one of the areas I'm very, very proud of is the protection of what we call the personal effects at the scene. I write about that a lot. So those come from the scene, but they also come from the body at the mortuary. They're your shoes, they're your glasses, they're your pens, they're your smartphones. And you only get one chance to get that right. If somebody moves those into landfill or there's been a long culture before 1996 when law was passed of the way that you would manage an air crash site is you would bulldoze the personal effects into the ground. and You would cover them over. If you do that, I've got nothing to offer. Now, the family might say to me, I never want to see those items again. Please, usually we, we will cremate them. I never want to see them again. But if they've if they've gone to landfill or they've gone to a site in the ground, I can't do anything with them. So the first thing, you know, there's some things where I'm absolutely adamant, and that is we protect the deceased, we protect the personal effects. And there's not really a comeback on that. And what's been lovely is to see those things now incorporated into plans. And they go right into what we call gold, where all the big decisions are made by the highest commanders. Those are in there. Whereas when I started, those were considered the pink and fluffy things.
2: See, I think there's something really powerful about that, that touch of humanity that you're describing that that you often bring to these situations. I remember reading many years ago um, an extract from one of the first uh, officers that went into Belson, the concentration camp, and he wrote a letter where he couldn't understand why in the care packages they'd offered lipstick, yeah. and yet he described it as a moment of genius because he saw these women that had been in such horrific circumstances bringing a bit of their own humanity yeah, back yeah, by yeah. putting lipstick on. Yeah, yeah. And I was reminded of it when I was reading your books, of whether it was just like the cup of tea you've described earlier or uh, when you went into that um, flooding site in Doncaster and it was people hanging up Christmas decorations while they were living in temporary tents and things like that. Can you explain to us some of the personal touches that have the biggest effect that anyone can hear when somebody's in pain or suffering that we can do to make a difference yeah. as quickly as possible.
1: I think one of the things is, you know, humans are great, people are great. And, uh, you know, you see something like the Ukraine crisis and everybody wants to help. And actually, sometimes my really difficult role is to say, we've, we've got we've got such an outpouring of compassion here, but your help has got to be directed in the right way or through the right agency. Towards the end of the book, I reflect on the fact that one of the one of the things we also get called out to do is the same type of centres that we activate for terrorism are also the types of centres that we activate for human slavery raids. So on every high street all around the country, there, there are people being trafficked and enslaved. And every now and again, the police and the borders force will go and you know, raid these premises, and the local disaster planners are asked to, to build very quickly a space, usually a community centre or something, where these people could be taken. And that is some of the most um, uh, hor- horrific work, I think, just because that really does bring home what a human is capable of doing to another human, and the the joy with which somebody they can't believe that they're being offered a cup of tea um they are given a toiletries package with cosmetics and and um shampoo exactly as you described you know you you're using example from 1945 this is right now this is 2022 and they often will go in and they won't speak, they won't make eye contact. And then when they've had a shower, the longest I've known somebody be in the shower for was 91 minutes. They just stayed under the hot water, just lathering themselves. They'd had no access to hot water for the whole time they were a slave. And they came out and then they looked, looked the border's officers in the face They were able to make eye contact with them. When you see that, there's an immediate power dynamic, isn't there? You know, you're disheveled. You're not being able to get clean. And if you can just fix that first, um, and that's something that you see with, with policing and prisoners and people who are evacuated, or I talk about in, the, in disasters, often people's clothes are ripped off. We don't ever train for that in the exercise. When we, when we train, we usually pay students to come and be pretend survivors. They're always got their clothes on. But would you want to be interviewed by a police officer about what you've just seen, sat in your pants? So though it's those things, that putting back of how you would want to be treated or how you would want your kin to be treated. And that's that's probably the most important thing we, we try and train.
0: Before we finish with our quickfire questions, I suppose what I really want to know, you've seen so much and you, in some ways, I think you see so much into the future because you're involved in the planning for what might happen next. Are you optimistic about our future? I kind of think if I'm someone listening to this, walking the dog with my AirPods in, I want to hear you say, yeah, the future's going to be okay. I don't know how much you're able to sort of say, but do you walk around thinking, yeah, the the future looks bright for for humankind generally?
1: So the way I describe it is I'm, I'm a pessimistic optimist. You know, let me do my thing. Let me keep worrying about the reasonable worst case scenario. I'm part of a tribe that does that. But when, you know, my overwhelming experience of doing this job for as long as I have is that there are always horizons and blue skies. So yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, as the book is entitled, When the Dust Settles, I suppose that's an important line, isn't it? You know, all things pass. Absolutely. And the sun does rise the following day eventually. Absolutely. Um, We'd like to ask you what your three non-negotiables are for you and for the people around you. What are the three things that you make sure you always bring to the table in in your work?
1: Uh, I I try and always bring uh, lightness. A sense of humour. Um, I always try and picture where the other person is, particularly if they are being aggressive or difficult. I'm trying to be in their shoes. Is that you know? Are they frightened? Is often a big thing that I see. I uh, always demand um, from them uh, a very high level of integrity. You know, lots of bad things happen in the aftermath of disaster, and, and I'm I I can look back on my career and know that I've I've you know I've I've delivered with integrity and hopefully with humour and, and a spirit.
2: What advice would you give to a young Lucy just starting out?
1: Learn to listen, learn to wait, learn to be asked. You know, 20-something Lucy was probably much more desperate to impart some of this, um, learning to wait. And exactly what we talked about, it won't always be easy to be you, but it'd be worth it.
0: How important is legacy to you?
1: For me, it was more about remembering, which is slightly different. I knew that I'd reached a point where I could not get to the point where the lessons of the last, uh, of my life and of the people who generously given me their insights, you know, particularly people like the wonderful Maureen Kavanagh, who lost her only son at Southall and dedicated her life to improving the safety of trains, but also the care of people after disaster. We were getting to the point where people were forgetting that. And so remembering is more important to me than. Legacy.
2: Very nice. If you could go back to one moment of your life, what would it be and why? It
1: would be right now. I'm the happiest I've ever been. Why is that? Because there is a peacefulness, I think, to where we are in terms of what's happened. There is a recognition of the role of what disaster planning is. Um in my personal life, as you will see in the book, there's a true acceptance that every day will be a challenge, but that I'd like to see how that day goes. So yeah, this is the best time in my life.
0: Wonderful. Um, For people that have listened to this conversation, is there one book that you would love them to read that you've found helpful to you throughout the course of your life?
1: I would ask people to take some time with Collective Conviction by the wonderful Anne Eyre and Pam Dix, which is about the decade of disasters in the 80s and 90s because what i'm telling you about in when the dust settles is other people's struggles and those are the stories of the bereaved and the survivors it was their fight that i learned from so collective conviction by liverpool university press
2: nice and is it one final golden rule to live in a high performance life live one word yeah Brilliant. Thank you so much.
0: I think, you know, considering that we've just had a a conversation for an hour with a disaster recovery expert, um, it has been a really uplifting and optimistic conversation. And I think that I really hope that people listen to this and realize that even in the very darkest moments that you experience much closer than we do, it feels like humanity and an arm around a shoulder or a bit of love or an understanding of everyone as an individual and everyone as a human being actually can make the biggest difference.
1: They can. Thank you. Thank you for the chance.
0: Thank you very much. It was really fantastic. Thank you so much. Damien. Jake. You know, I didn't expect to feel optimistic and positive after speaking to Lucy, but i tell you what, right? She does that job obviously because she's extremely bright and she's really well educated and she understands the world of disasters and emergencies but i think more than that the reason why she's great at what she does is because she understands human beings and feels like the single most important thing that she can do in a disaster is to connect with the human element of
2: one yeah it reminded me very much of when we met with dr rong and chatterjee where he spoke about before you try and educate you have to connect you have to understand the human being and i think that came out so loud and clear in what Lucy was telling us that just a cup of tea, just the dignity, just the eye contact and the act of kindness opens people up to then want to connect with you and to make things better.
0: And this understanding as well that, you know, and I want you listening to this podcast now to realize how strong and how powerful and how resilient you all are. You know, Lucy talks about seeing people at the very worst moment, the hardest moment that we would never want to experience, yet the human spirit sees people through. And I think that there is a power in expecting that, you know, we will all die, all our loved ones will die. But we will be able to cope with a lot of that stuff that comes our way because human beings are able to do that.
2: Yep, I think that's a really powerful message. But also as well, I take on board Lucy's message about stop consuming the negative messages that we're almost being spoon-fed, that we assume that the world is a more dangerous, more hostile place than it really is. That I took that message away from her that human beings are great. We all have this innate capacity to be kind. And I think if you can't find somebody to be kind, be kind yourself, Um, because that is the wellspring of where our resilience comes from.
0: And I would just say, listen again to her definition of living a high-performance life and the one lesson she wanted to leave people with, live, like live, this may well happen, but live, what's the point sitting there thinking it's round the corner? Beautiful. Thanks, mate, I really enjoyed it.
2: No, I did as well. I found it life-affirming, so thank you.
0: One of the things that we love on High Performance is you getting in touch and telling us that you're enjoying the show. If you would like to appear at the end of one of the episodes as one of the listener guests, then you can do. All you need to do is head to High Performance, head to Damien at Liquid Thinker or me at Jake Humphrey on Instagram. Send us a message and we'd love to hear from you. Or you can email us directly. Um, The lovely Eve, whose name you hear mentioned at the end of every show, is standing by to get your emails. So if you really want to come on here and share your story, then eve.hill at highperformancegroup.co.uk is the email address. And who knows? You may well be doing this in a few days time because it's time to meet one of our listeners and actually on this occasion I wonder whether he's had his arm twisted into coming on and joining us because we didn't have a message from our guest we had a message from a friend who got in touch to say that my friend Miles is far 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 too modest to come on he wouldn't even consider himself to be a high performer however he set up a charity with the objective to raise a small amount of money to buy some mattresses for children in need in Kenya in less than 10 years he's raised more than a million pounds he's a keen listener to the podcast as we've swapped suggestions to our favorite episodes and although he's humble i thought i'd give it a go and put you in touch so um thank you very much to the friend of miles for getting in touch hey miles
4: how you doing
0: very well so drew sent us a message are you are you kind of happy with this or has drew forced you into something here buddy
4: No, absolutely. Yeah. Delighted, (laughs) delighted to be on and uh, appreciate Drew getting in touch. So tell us about,
2: about the charity then, Miles, because like we often intrigued when we meet our guests about where the catalyst to want to make a difference comes from and, you know, providing mattresses for children in Kenya is intriguing.
4: Yeah. So I guess going back, you know, I never set out with the goal in life of, of setting up a charity. I didn't think I'd find myself in Kenya, but I'm a runner and, uh, Back in uh, 2009, I, I took part in a, a race up in Aberdeen where two Kenyan athletes came over and were trying to break four minutes for the mile for the first time and I had the opportunity to be a pacemaker that day. I had a meeting with the Kenyan athletes just beforehand asking them what pace they'd like and pretty quickly I realised I was going to be too slow to pace them through halfway. So um, in the end, ended up pacemaking for the British athletes in the race and Gideon Gathimba and Bethwell Bergen went on and and ran three minutes and 57, I think it was, that day. Um, And so I I guess I didn't really know it at the time, but that's where my fascination with Kenyan athletics came from and just wondered how it was possible for for humans to be that quick. And so two years later, I got the opportunity to go out to Kenya with a friend of mine, Dan Mulhair, and we went out for three months and it was just an eye-opening experience. For me, up until that point, I was probably training four or five times a week, whereas you saw guys and girls there at that point training sometimes three times a day probably less common now more common a couple of times a day but you know they were up at six in the morning for an easy run 10 o'clock an interval session and sometimes an easy run in the afternoon as well and so it it made me realize that although there's other factors that contribute to to Kenyan success that hard work is at the center of it and so that it, it transformed my thinking towards athletics but also just in life in general as well and a couple of years later Got the opportunity to visit a children's home called the pavilion village in in Caratina, um, which at that point there was 22 kids there almost all of them out of school due to a lack of fees um they were in the home for various reasons some of them had lost their parents due to hiv others abandoned abused um but despite that they were so happy and so proud of where they were and they were sleeping in desperate conditions and so gideon and i left and just wanted to do something to help and so we set up our fundraising page to try and raise £484 for 22 mattresses, which for me, you know, I was thinking that's probably the cost of one mattress in the UK. And incredibly, after two or three days, we'd raised almost three times that amount. Mattresses were delivered, typical Kenyan-style delivery, wobbling off the back of this lorry. And from there, we obviously shared the, the photo of the the mattresses arriving, which to me was a no-brainer. People had donated money and you'd expect to see you know, the impact it had. But people were really positive about that response. And with the extra money, we were able to start getting some of the children back into school. And that, I guess, definitely was the catalyst to, to us setting up the Gatham Edwards Foundation, which you know, has gone on to the main focus is getting children into school, but house building and, and business startups as well. So, yeah, sometimes just saying yes to an opportunity, you don't know where it's going to lead, but takes you down a path that you'd never have imagined. So how often do you get,
2: out there too Kenya to see the impact of the work that you're doing so
4: me personally I am um, up until 2019 I was spending around six months a year there met my wife and have two children now as as well so we were we were living between here in the UK up until 2019 and we came back partly because my, my daughter was starting primary one but my dad was terminally ill as well at the time so we're based um based in the UK now and we've got a team of of seven out in Kenya who do a much better job of uh, things on that side than I would anyway. So
0: there's an American um, preacher who I really like. He's a cool guy called Bishop Jakes, TD Jakes. And he says, if you can't figure out your purpose, figure out your passion because your passion will lead you right into your purpose. So this started out miles as being something that you were passionate about. Can you tell our audience how it feels to suddenly find that you also are living a real life of purpose?
4: Yeah, definitely. um, It's, I think it's a very it's a very strong quote in that you you follow what you're passionate about. That's the main thing that I say to children. You know, if I go in and s- and speak with children at schools, it's um, don't let anybody tell you that your passion can't end up being a career. Don't let anybody tell you that you you can't achieve something. And the buzz that you get from when you find that sense of purpose, it's really hard to explain. And yeah I'm I'm very fortunate we've got we've got companies who who support us that enable us to to have staff and run it full time and so to have this passion and and this purpose as a as a career is just it's an unbeatable feeling you know if you can just make a difference to one person even if it's one person every day then you know you're doing a good thing and you're hopefully making the world a better place
0: the single biggest takeaway then uh, miles from listening to the high performance podcast
4: it's a tough one to just say one um i think i would have to go with um from the, the Lewis Morgan interview, I, I tend to listen to these interviews when I'm on sort of easy training runs and uh, I, I judge the, the best ones by the number of times I have to stop during the run and make some notes on how I can sort of uh, relate it to, to my life and work. And so I would say biggest takeaway from that is is, is just how important it is not to have an ego. Um, it was a Steve Borthwick episode as well that it said, you're. it's amazing what you can achieve when it doesn't matter who takes the credit. And I, I think that's really important. You know, you just, bring as many people together to make the biggest impact as as possible and you know you can achieve great things and help help other people to achieve great things as well so i think that was really really powerful
2: and is there an episode that you'd play to some of these young people in kenya that you feel had, uh, make a difference to them
4: 100 john mcavoy um <laughs> some of the it's probably uh you know most um prevalent at the moment uh, as partly as a result of lockdowns in Kenya and they've squeezed the school curriculum there's a lot of pressure on young people and we're seeing a a big increase in the in issues relating to alcohol drug abuse teenage pregnancy and it I've already shared that episode with the team just last night because I, I think that message is, is so powerful that what matters most is is where you're going rather than where you are. And some of them are in a really difficult place right now. So to see somebody who's come through what he's come through and not only do something positive with his life, but to spread that message to others, I, I really hope that can, that can have an impact with some of the, the kids that are struggling at the moment.
0: That's great. And where can people listening to this find out more about your charity and the work that you're doing, mate?
4: Um, So it's Gathimba Edwards Foundation, that's G-A-T-H-I-M-B-A. So we've got our website and we're on Instagram, Gathimba underscore Edwards, and then Twitter at Gathimba Edwards and on Facebook and and LinkedIn as well. We're trying to be as active as as possible, just sharing stories of the the families we support.
0: Listen, we wish you all the very best. We're so pleased that High Performance has played a very small role in Driving the inspiration, the lessons, and the learnings. And uh, it's lovely to think of those lives that you're changing in Kenya.
4: Thank you. Cheers.
0: That was great, wasn't it? You know, I'll tell you why I liked it, right? Was because Miles talked about hard work. And he said, you know, let's not kid ourselves. And, you know, when you're talking about passion and you're talking about hard work, there's that great phrase, hard work without passion is just hard work. Passion without hard work is just passion. Like what he's proven there is you're bringing the two together, Damien. And when you bring the two together, that's when you start having that real world impact.
2: Oh, yeah. It's rocket fuel, isn't it? And I think I'd, I love the idea of uh, of just seeing that and think and rather than seeing it and sort of feeling that sad for those kids in that home, thinking, how can I make a difference? And just taking that next first step. Sometimes you don't you have to know where you're where you going to. It's just do the next right thing, and that's exactly what Miles did. It's perfect, isn't it? That might be a quote from Frozen, bro. I think it is. <laughs> I think it is. I think right I picked thing. it up recently off a, off a wise old sage that we were working with. Do you know who that was, Jake?
0: <laughs> I can't think. But do you know what, actually? that is, Let's finish on that because it's a reminder for the fact that people are constantly searching and looking. And sometimes like I think they discard good information purely because of where it came from. Right. Yes, that is a Disney film. Yes, it is a kid's Disney film. But actually, we talk about do the best you can with where you are with what you've got. That's identical to just do the next right thing. If you went through your day just doing the next right thing, you'd have a great day, man.
2: Yep, those small stepping stones eventually lead to some pretty big leaps to some amazing destinations, don't they? They do.
0: Should we finish with a message from Ben? Who got in touch to say, I want a message to let you know the amazing impact you've had on my life. Back in summer stroke autumn 2020, I was bordering on depression, extremely angry for no reason, drinking too much, horrible to friends and family. I was in a job I didn't like and I suffered an ACL rupture and football was the only thing that I had. However, listening to your podcast has changed me forever. Not even two years down the line i'm mentally in the best place i've ever been i have the job which i've wanted for years i've never had better relationships with my friends or my family and i'm expecting my first child as well with my girlfriend i now only drink to have fun not to escape and i'm five months post acl reconstruction surgery and i'm the fittest i've ever been i honestly don't think this would have happened if it wasn't for your podcast i can't thank you enough but it's kind of a reminder Damien, to Ben and everyone else, actually their success and their fightbacks and their returns from adversity, actually, we deserve no credit at all. There's only one person that gets the credit for those, isn't it?
2: Yeah, definitely. Happiness is an inside job and like Ben's demonstrating there is, you know, maybe some of these episodes and interviews have have given him a bit of a lift, but ultimately it's about his own hard work and his own willingness to, to change.
0: And sometimes I think it's easier to say, oh, well done, the High Performance Podcast for inspiring me. But I think from Damien and myself and every single member of the team, as Damien puts it, it's an inside job. You know, you are the ones changing your lives. You're the ones coming to this podcast. You're the ones doing the next right thing. And it's all very well listening to these podcast episodes, but it's the noting them down. It's the acting on what you learn. It's the sharing it with your friends. It's reminding yourself of the lessons. Something as simple, right? as hearing something amazing on one of our podcast episodes, putting it on a piece of paper and sticking it on the bathroom mirror. That is the kind of thing, isn't it, Damien, that can have that daily impact on your life.
2: Yeah, very rarely in our interviews do we hear any sort of big seismic changes. It's small steps like Mel Robbins' high five, whether it's Dr. and Chatterjee's 3Ms, meditation, movement and mindset. It's all these small things that eventually add up to significant changes.
0: There you go, guys. World-class basics. They're there for you. And that is how you get to true high performance. Big thanks to Gemma. Big thanks to Eve. Thank you to Will, to Finn from Rethink Audio. The biggest of thanks to you, Professor Hughes, for bringing your (laughs) ample number of brain cells to the conversation and making me seem cleverer.
2: <laughs> no the thanks lies with you jay Honestly, kind of say appreciate it but yeah no it's brilliant it's good fun and uh, of course big
0: thanks to all of you for listening to this podcast if you can share it with your friends if you can talk about it among your family then why not why don't you be the person today to do the next right thing and spread the messages from high performance because there is nothing here that does anything but help people if you want to get more Then you can join our Members Club. We send out a motivational email every single Monday where we talk about the episodes. You can also get keynote speeches. You can get high-performance boosts. You can get exclusive pod episodes. You can get loads of stuff, and it won't cost you a penny. All you need to do is go to thehighperformancepodcast.com. That's thehighperformancepodcast.com. Click the circle. We'll send you an email. You're in the club and you are a member of the high performance circle. But on behalf of all of us, thanks very much for listening. Remember, there's no secret, it's all there for you. So be your own biggest cheerleader this week and make world class basics your calling card. See you next time.